think this word will uh, encourage us. Now, what I want to do is just lift two verses out of the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, and then I want to provide some context and some insights. So if you will allow me to do that. Now, the two verses that I want you to address your attention to is verse 13. Verse 13 from the English Standard Version reads as follows. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now go forward to verse 28. And verse 28 reads, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, and he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And what I would like to do is to just have us focus our attention on this uh, topic. The God of the hills is the God of the valleys also. That's what I want to uh, focus our attention on. The God of the hills is the God of the valleys also. Now, sometime in our Western culture, Metaphorically, the hills can be a place of rejoicing and a place of victory. Conversely, metaphorically, the valleys can be a time of defeat and sadness. Sometimes we draw that from the 23rd number of the psalm with that phrase, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so sometimes what we do is we bring that into our theology and into our living to limit the valley, a time of defeat, sadness, and so forth. Uh, even in our, even the hymnist also picked this up in his hymn, it may be in the valley where countless dangers hide, or it may be in the sunshine where I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. Now in that first line of that lyric, he attaches the valley to danger. But oftentimes I have discovered when you look at valleys, that is where the lush vegetation is. That's where the fruit, that's where the growth takes place. You spend your time on mountaintops, you will discover very little growth is on the mountaintop. 
very little. There, there, there's no protection. There, it's exposed to the elements. Uh, it's exposed to the rain, the sun, the wind. Uh, there's, no, there's very little soil on top. And if the soil is there, it's hard and compacted. When you go down into the valley where the streams flow, the ground is softer. The vegetation is lush. And oftentimes there is a measure of growth. And I've learned that the same God who allows me to experience the hilltop elation also is there with me in the valley. Whether it is a time of sadness or joy, he's there. So let me see if I can pull out some principles from this text. And let me just set the table for you so you will uh, will have points of reference. Historically, Ahab is the king of Israel. He is the king of those ten tribes that went north. Now you recall uh, in Israel's history, you had the time of the judges. Uh, after the death of Joshua and his generation. The judges were on the scene. Samuel, who is the last of the judges, anoints Saul as first king. Why? Because the people came to Samuel and said, in essence, you are old and your sons don't walk in your footsteps. Give us a king so we will be like other people. Now, this did not catch God off guard because back in Deuteronomy, he had already told the people, when you ask for a king, here is the criteria that I want you to use. Saul is the first king. He moves off the scene. David is the second king. He moves off the scene. Solomon is the third king. He moves off the scene. And after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And two tribes go south, which we sometimes refer to as Judah. Ten tribes went north, which is sometimes we refer to Israel. Israel's capital was in Samaria. And Ahab has come to the throne. Ahab is a man of dubious distinction. If you read in 1 Kings chapter 16, you will see the writer's assessment of Ahab. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not walk in the ways of his father David. And as if it was a small thing, he erected high places. And as if it was a trivial thing, he married Jezebel, the daughter of the Sidonians. And that name, that woo, is so impactful that I just heard. Because most, most people, most parents will not name their daughters Jezebel just like they will not name their sons Judas. That, that, that's how impactful those two names are. That's the assessment of Ahab. So now some years have passed and the king of Syria comes out against Israel. He comes out in Samaria. And in the opening parts of the 20th chapter, you'll read that Ben-Hadad comes out with a, a group of kings. They lay siege around Israel. And he sends a message, your gold is mine, your silver is mine, your children is mine, are mine, and your wives are mine. 
And Ahab says, whatever you say, Ben-Hadad, that's what we're going to do. Then he comes back, pushing the envelope a little bit further. And he says, now, you heard what I said yesterday. Now, today, I am sending my people. They're going to go through your houses. And whatever is precious to you, that's what I'm going to take. This is painting the picture now so that you'll get the gist. And so they encamp, and, and, and Ahab meets with the elders. And the elders said, he's gone too far. You should not agree. The king Ahab goes back. And sends word to Ben-Hadad, hey, what you said about the wives I can hang with, but coming into our houses we cannot allow. And what happens is that what? Ben-Hadad comes down with those kings and they siege, lay siege to the city. And a prophet comes and meets with Ahab. Now why is that important? That's important because of what happens in chapter 19. In chapter 19, it is the narrative of Elijah in the cave following the victory on Mount Carmel. And what, does, what is one of Elijah's complaint in the cave? In the cave, he says, it is enough, O Lord, take my life because uh, Jezebel is running rampant, King Ahab is running rampant, everybody has bailed to them, and, and Lord... I am the only one who is left. He's having a pity party in the cave. And the word comes back to Ahab after the wind, after the fire, after the earthquake. The record says in, in the chapter, there's a still small voice that God showed up and said, I've heard what you said, Elijah. I've heard about your complaint, but I want you to know I still have some prophets in the nation who have not eaten at Jezebel's table, nor have they bowed the knee or kissed the foot of Baal. So when this prophet comes on scene and speaks to Ahab, it's a reminder to Elijah that Elijah, you weren't the only one because I can call my prophet and send him to the king just like I sent you to the king to tell him there would be no rain in 1 Kings chapter 17. So God sends this king and he says, now do you see this host around you? I've given them all into your hand. And I'm giving them into your hands so that you may know that I am the Lord God. He uses the term know in the context of relationally and experientially. Ahab, I want you to know. I know what, I know what your heart is. I know what you've done. But Ahab, my grace can still reach your heart where you are if you will acknowledge and know me relationally and experientially that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so in verses 13 through 23, a battle is fought. God honors his word and the Assyrians or the Arameans, as it says in some of our translations, are defeated. And the prophet comes back now and he says now to the king, now 
get ready because next spring they're coming back. And they're coming back with more ferocity in order to do the same thing. And that's where we pick up our verse. In verse 26 it says, he mustered an army, he reorganized his army, he made some strategic moves, and he has an advisor in his cabinet who makes this statement. He, they said, now listen, in verse uh, 23, after the reorganization of the army and everything else, he says this, listen, and the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than this, than them. He goes on and he says, do this, organize the army. Now, why is that important? Because Syria was set in the hillside. And oftentimes when kings went out to war, if they were to use their chariots, they had to fight in the valley. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 1, it talks about how a certain portion of the land uh, was not able to be subdued, subdued because the enemy king could not bring his chariots into the hill country or the high country. We see another image of this where? When the children of Israel come out of Egypt at the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds in the Hebrew. And where does God defeat them? In the plains. Why? Because in their minds, the chariots could run on the flat ground. But what happened when they got on the flat ground, God allowed the water to come back and mud came in and they got stuck in the mud. The Egyptians felt that they had the advantage on the flat ground, not realizing that God controlled not only the flat ground, but the hill and the water. And so he says here, this, this servant says, now, here's what you do. Now, another point that comes into mind is this. He makes the statement in verse 23, their gods, small g-o-d-s. are gods of the hills. Why is that important? Because in this culture, gods were assigned to territories. They were assigned to the topography of the land. They were assigned to acts of nature. They were assigned to all kinds of these areas where deities would manage and control. And so we see that in biblical literature. When you hear the god, the small g-o-d-s, Dagon, god of the Philistines. Why? Because he was like a fish. When you hear Bog, the god of, of the, that we read in Syria and in areas in, in, uh, around the area, he, had, he was over fertility. He was over the rain. And so Baal was always connected in a hyphenated when we see God moving throughout Egypt, in the frogs, in the locusts, in the flies, in the darkness, in the boils, in death, all of those were symbolically representative of deities in the nation of Egypt. And so this concept 
of having small G-O-D-S was seen throughout the land. And so he makes this statement. Their gods, now this is, this is their thinking now, our gods are strongest in our chariots. Okay? Where do our chariots operate best? In the plain. Okay? So let's get them down out of the hill country, out of Samaria. Let's get them down into the plain where we will have the tactical advantage. That's what's in the background. Okay? And, and, and so that's what they are thinking. Now to add to, to complicate matters, let me throw another little caveat in here now. To complicate matters, Samaria was in the northern country with hills, geographically. But to add insult to injury, what did Ahab do? He set up shrines to false gods in Samaria in the hill country, which led the other nations to conclude that the vantage point that they have is where their shrines are. And where are their shrines? Their shrines are in the hill country. So if we get them away from their shrines and down to our plain, then our God will have the home court advantage. That's, in the, that's all in the background of this concept of God's G, small g-o-d-s but do you not know that biblical literature uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word there is El or Elohim and in biblical literature, Hebrew literature depending on how it is phrased Elohim can refer to small g-o-d-s or Lord God capital G-O-D it's all in the So this, this prophet comes and he says now, he says now, the word is out. He's speaking to the king now. And he says now, King Ahab, the word is out. We, we've been listening now. And, 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 and the word on the street is, or the word in the valley is, or word around town is, is that our gods are only good on the hilltop. But, but, but King, I have a word for the Lord, from the Lord. And the word from the Lord is, is that regardless to what the uh, Arameans have concluded, I'm going to give them into your hand. Why? So that you, King Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. So he, they fight. God delivers, and Israel gets the victory. Why? Because this God whom we serve, the phrase there, Yahweh in verse 28, is not only the God of the hills, but he shows up in the plains as well. He shows up let me, let, me, let me do it like this. Let's go back a chapter and, and look at Elijah on Mount Carmel. And there he is there with the prophets of Baal or Baal. 
And he makes that statement now to the nation of Israel. How long, old English of the King James, halt ye between two opinions? How long go you limping on two feet? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And the record says the people answered him not a word. It goes on and it says, I tell you what, gather the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and, and allow them to make an altar and allow them to call on their God. And, and the God who answers by fire, he will be God. And you know the story. You know the story how they cried unto the Lord and, and he didn't show up. And then they started to self-mutilate themselves, cut themselves with latches. Uh, Elijah started having a little fun. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's relieving himself. And, and finally, Elijah comes in and says, now, bring me some water and pour it around the altar. Why was that important? Because it was doing a drought and water was precious. And he brings the water around and, 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 and fills the water and fills the trench and fills the altar and he calls on God and God answers by fire and consumes the water, consumes the idols, and God shows up at Mount And we shout because of what happened at Mount Carmel. But what happened after Mount Carmel? The word gets back to Jezebel and she says to, regarding Elijah, so may the gods, small g-o-d-s, do so to me and more also if I do not make his life like one of the lives of one of my prophets. And what happens? What happens? What happens? Elijah, remember now the victory on Mount Carmel. Remember God answering by fire. Remembering him cutting up the prophets of Baal. Remembering God showing up, but he hears Jezebel's voice. Jezebel's word and what happens? He beats feet and runs out of town. Running. In a hurry. Running. And he shows up in a cave. Listen. The God of Mount Carmel is also the God of the cave. What is your cave experience? When you think you're all alone and you're there having a pity party and you're there grieving or you're there burdened or you're there frustrated or you're there angry or you're there mad and you feel like God has left you alone. You feel like God has let you down. You feel like God has dropped the ball and you're sitting there and you're wondering what's going on and you're saying almost like Elijah, take my life over because I'm not worthy to live because I'm the only one left. And guess who shows up in the cave? Or better yet, guess who was in the cave when you got there? It's a, I'm not making this up a single text. Because God calls Elijah in the cave and says what? Elijah, what are you doing I saw what happened on Carmel. I saw what you did. What are you doing here? In other words, if you, if you, if you really want to say, uh, get down to the real integrity, he's actually saying, look where you are. Same, same verbiage 
is in Genesis chapter 3. When God says, Adam, where are you? He's not asking for inner information. He is saying, Adam, look where you are. You haven't been hiding from me. You used to look forward to hearing my footsteps in the garden. Why are you hiding now? Look where you are. If you're in the cave today, God may be saying the same to you. Look where you are. I'm here. I wasn't in the, in the earthquake. I wasn't in the wind or the hurricane or the tornado. I wasn't in the fire. But in the still, small voice, look where you are. I can handle your mountaintop caramel experience. But guess what? When the bottom drops out, yeah, guess what? When the tears are flowing, when the heart is heavy, when their tears all around and the burden is wearing you down, guess what? also a God of the valleys. Let me give you another example, and I heard, as I hurry on to a close from New Testament literature, we see Jesus in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast in Canaan, and we hear his mother saying, uh, the wine has run out, and she comes to Jesus and tells him, there's a discussion between mother and son, but she concludes telling the servants, whatever he tells you to do, that's what you do. Record says that Jesus tells them to fill the water pots, they fill the water pots, then he tells them to draw out, they draw out, and interestingly enough, the record does not ever record Jesus touching the water pot. He just said, fill and draw out. And the conclusion was by the those at the festivities, because Jesus went to parties. I'm not going to call him a party animal, but he did go to parties. And the testimony is, you have saved the best for last. Okay, keep that in your mind. Canaan, but now walk with me a few miles south. And there's a funeral going on in the land of Nain, the city of Nain. And there's a widow there, and Jesus meets the widow and rescues her son from death. So the point that I'm making is, is that he is God in the joyous time and he is God even during the times of death. God of the hills. God of the valleys. God in good times. God in bad times. God in laughter. God in tears. God in rejoicing. God in mourning. God, when everybody's patting me on the back, and God, when they're pushing me down, God, when they're throwing accolades my way, and God, when they're dragging my name through the mud, he is God, he is Lord over all. So let me just say, say this word, God in life, God in death, and to my brother, Brother Jamie, God before Sonny and God after Sonny. He's going to be there with you. 
He is the God of the hills. He's the God of the valleys. My last point is this, is that in the text there is this, we were talking about the gods being on equal plane. And so one of the things that comes out of this text is this, is that the Arameans or the Syrians have God on the same level of, of everyone else. Of the Latin phrase primus inter pares, he's just one among many. And so they think because he is one among many that they can come in and they can surpass him. But what does God do? God says, no, I am not uh, one among many. I am not primus inter pares. I am ne plurus ultra. There is nobody else like me. And he says this to Ahab so that you, Ahab, may know experientially, I don't care how many shrines you put around Israel, there is no other God before me. And God is saying the same to us. I don't care how many shrines you erect in your life, there is nobody else but me. And, and, and yes, we have our shrines. We have our political parties. We have our football team. We have our sports teams. We have our children. We have our education. And all these tangible, perishable things that we put before God. But when it's all said and done, God is going to show you whatever you put before me, I will still be standing when it's all said and done. So lastly... Regardless to what chapter of life we find ourselves, he is still God. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter where you find yourself. Doesn't matter how much um, anguish you have. Doesn't matter how much fear you have, he's still God. He's still there. If I would just pause, he'll make himself known. And when he makes himself known, he invites me to know him relationally. But he also invites me to know him experientially. So why? So that way when the next crisis comes, and it's coming, yeah, you're either in one of three places, you're in the fire now, you've just come out of the fire, or you're heading to the fire. Those are the three categories. But listen, no matter where you find yourself, God will meet you, and here's one of the things about knowing him experientially. When you find yourself in the crisis, does God have enough street cred for you to keep on trusting him in the current crisis with the same street cred that he brought you through the previous crisis? Does he have a track record with you? Are there, are there markers in your life? Or let me phrase it, use it. Are there stones or memorials in your life so that others can see where God showed up, but also where you can be reminded?
furnace is where God showed up. And because he showed up there, I'm going to trust him.